The Club and Resort Talks podcast is brought to you by Bush's Best. Bush's Best always strives to live up to its name, providing the very best beans and bean-based products to tables across the country. Learn more at bushbeansfoodservice.com. Hey, this is Joanna DeCellis, editor of Club and Resort Chef. Welcome back to the Club and Resort Talks podcast. A few days ago, Winged Foot Golf Club's general manager, Colin Burns, reached out to me on LinkedIn. He said he loves the podcast and wanted to know if he might be a guest. Winged Foot has always been a close friend to the brand, and the club's executive chef, Rye Waddington, is a trusted resource. Ever curious, I agreed, and boy, am I glad I did. Colin is a masterful storyteller. He's also deeply insightful regarding the role of general manager and the importance of food and beverage in a club like Winged Foot. Hello, Colin. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, great. Thanks. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, I'm good. We were just, um, we're moving ahead with, uh, with life um, at the club. So let's dive right into it. Tell me about what's going on at Winged Foot. You have had a busy year. Well, the a lot year of pivots. Started, yeah, <laughs> it was, you know, it's funny. So I'll be there um, October 1st. I'll be at Winged Foot 30 years wow. as the general manager. Um, and so I've had crazy years over that 30 year period, done lots of interesting things. Uh, mm -hmm. but 2020 was certainly one for the, uh, for the record book, so to speak. You know, we started out the year, uh, hoping to host the 2020 U.S. Open, uh, in June and we got to about March. So it's funny how we're, we're, we're almost back to that same time period. It was actually about now where things were not looking so hot right. in terms of hosting, uh, 50,000 people a day. So we saw it unraveling. And the, I think the biggest, you know, the, the big, just to go into it for a little bit, the biggest thing we did was make a decision not to build out all the tents and all the infrastructures because, um, you know, I use the term, you know, go city. I didn't want to see all of these structures sitting there for six months, nine months, whatever it was. So we made, that was our first decision. Um, and then it just sort of unraveled. And then we had to start working with the state and then figure out sort of what to do. Um, and we were desperate to host uh, the Open. And some of us had worked on the plans for five years, maybe even more. Uh, we actually started with a contract in 2013. So a lot of time had passed. So we, we kept working with the USGA and the USGA was in coordination with the PGA uh, Tour, PGA of America and, and the Masters figuring out. And it was all these, you're moving these puzzle pieces. Well, if we move to this date, um, you'll have to move to that date. And so we kept going, 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 going. Uh, eventually, we came up with a plan that would be accepted by New York State in terms of COVID uh, guidance. And, uh, and then it worked with all the other, you know, with all the other associations. So um, next thing you know, it was September. And instead of 50,000 people, we had no people. But, but I'm happy to say, Joanna, that it was actually really successful. Um, you know, it's funny, we, we were meeting recently um, about a future U.S. Open. We're not sure when that'll be, but, you know, these things, uh, you know, the USA goes out fairly far in terms of announcements. So we're, you know, we're considering a future date. So we're, we're hoping that, um, that, you know, as, as, um, as the world saw and, and the golf in particular, you know, golf community saw that the club is really beautiful without all of the sort of stuff. So it created this, this sort of this hard benchmark now because other clubs are saying, oh, we want to be like that. And we're also saying we want to be like that in the future, but the economic model is, is you know, it doesn't work having no one. So anyway, yeah. so here we are just having completed and we're back into having discussions about a future event. 
Well, that's exciting. I know yeah. I talked, I talked with Rye uh, yeah. on like the Friday of the event and he was like, it's so quiet. It's so weird. <laughs> it was really strange. Yeah, it was, it was, but you know, it's funny, but it had this, you know, I kept thinking about whether or not, is this what it was like back in the twenties when, you know, the first, Wingfoot hosted its first US Open in 1929 and the club was very new at the time. It was actually the youngest club, youngest private club to ever host um, a US Open. And it's, it's funny, Joanne, I've actually looked at the documents and there was basically a one page contract. There were a couple of mentions as opposed to, you know, seven years of back and forth and a 27 page document. And so it was, it was very quaint back then. And I think some of this, I think some of what people saw at Wingfoot in 2020 harken back to that time um, when there was a certain serenity to it and the players, I mean, there, look, there was a crowd in 1929, but, but it was, it was very, very small by comparison to today's standards. So it was, so, and it's funny, you know who loved it? The players. Right. I mean, the players thought it was great not having somebody yelling, you the man in the hole, you know, looking, <laughs> right. to, looking to be yeah. high-fived and slapped on the hand as they're passing through. So there was actually, and it's funny, and that comes directly from the players. I mean, they were very, they're very keen on this idea. Now, again, it's not sustainable, but maybe there's some path in between. Maybe there's a nice middle between all of yeah. that. Yeah. So we're going to shift gears here. Let's talk a little bit about food and beverage. So your chef is one of our very good friends. And I think I call him once a week to ask for a favor. And he always says yes. So thank you for sharing your chef with us. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a great guy. He is. So, But you have also spent some time in food and beverage, right? You started your career in food and beverage. Tell us a little uh, bit about where you came from. Well, I can tell you um, that I have four brothers and we were weaned. Um, at my father's side, uh, my mother and father's side, and my grandparents' side, uh, at a place called Burns Country Inn, was right down the street from Montclair State College at the time. It's now Montclair State University. Um, our most famous alum, I think, is Bruce Willis, who worked there while he was in college. So I, I've known Bruce a long time, and he was a busboy there. And it was so anyway. So so we grew up. Um, uh, you know, it's it's funny. I, I think about it. I, I think my safe sort of space when I'm at the club and the, the, the staff gets a kick out, I'll actually walk into a walk-in box and just stand there because the smells always bring me back to my childhood. Cause I was you know, 10 years old and I was cutting lettuce with this, with this African-American guy named Henry. I had this big, big scar down his face and had this very heavy Southern accent. And, and I worked side by side in, in kitchens, that kitchen for almost my entire life. And then when the restaurant was finally sold with my father, the timing wasn't right for us to take over. It's still there. Um, and then, so anyway, I've spent my, literally my entire life. I never, you know, I used to beg my father, dad, can I, I just want, like, there was a gas station across the street, actually. Dad, just one summer, I want to work there. Can't do it. Can't do it. <laughs> Everybody works at the restaurant. So I saw my grandmother and grandfather every day. We lived, and that was, uh, that was non-negotiable for my father. We had to live within like walking distance of the restaurant. And so it was sort of a nice community. There was a great big piece of property in between where we lived in the restaurant. And we literally walked back and forth to the restaurant. So I was, I was exposed to it from a very young age and I still love it. So yes, and I remember learning how to make my first sauces and I remember roasting prime ribs and doing all, and I still love, love, love to cook. So how did you end up in management instead of becoming a chef? Well, you know, it's very interesting. First of all, I got sick of it. I think, you know, when you start too young, in something, sometimes it sort of works against you maintaining that path. Um, and plus it was, you know, it's funny, Joanna, there was so much, 
I don't want to say strife, but there was so much pressure working for your own father that at some point you just want, I mean, my older brother who went to, ironically enough, went to Fairleigh Dickinson for hotel and restaurant management, became a doctor. He wanted nothing to do with it. And I sort of, <laughs> I a great line. He said, the next time I walk into a restaurant, I'm going through the front door, not the back door. There you go. <laughs> from a young age, we've had our fill. Um, so what happened was, it, it's funny. So I decided almost on a whim, uh, right after college to go to uh, to go to Europe. And I was with a, with a buddy of mine and that's when you bought a Eurail pass and you flew from uh, Newark to Luxembourg City, which was the cheapest flight. You did it on Iceland Air for $90 standby. So you'd go there say on a, on a Wednesday night, you'd get a, you'd get a card and your number was 97. Sometimes you'd sit there for a day and you finally get called. You got hopped on the flight. You went to, you stopped in by the way through Reykjavik. So, so I went there um, and I actually ended up working. Um, I worked in a little, um, a little hostel, a youth hostel, Auberge de Genet in Namur. And I just fell in love with it. So, so ironically enough, I sort of escaped the restaurant only to end up back in this little sort of their youth hostel in the kitchen cooking, because that's how I sort I, I earned my keep. Uh, so that was kind of ironic. And I came back, um, hung around the restaurant a little bit, went back again. And then it's funny, when I came back, Atlantic City had just come online. So since that time to today, Atlantic City has gone up and then back down again to where it is today, where they're demolishing buildings. But at the, at the time, um, uh, Resorts International um, had opened up and then it was the Claridge, which is where I ended up, I ended up because that was the place to be. If you wanted to be, you want, it was glamorous. It was the, you know, it was our version of, 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 you know, of Las Vegas. Everything was brand new. Every piece of silver, every chafing dish, they were spending money like crazy people. And I just wanted to get away. So I went down there. A cousin of mine was an extremely successful attorney down there um, doing casino licensing. So, so I ended up in Atlantic City. And it was absolutely flying. It was seven days a week, 24 hours a day. You'd work these crazy shifts. And I didn't end up in the in the kitchen. I ended up in front of the house. And one thing led to the next. And because of my experience with my father's restaurant, high volume, they, they tapped me for a management, sort of very junior management position in food and beverage. And, and um, next thing you know, I'm, uh, I'm in the process of getting married and have my first child. I have five children. I, I leave Atlantic City, go to work for Sheridan Corporation for a little bit. Next thing you know, I'm there at Plandome Country Club, which is in Manhasset, Long Island. I'm interviewing there. And, and I think the guys felt like they were interviewing one of their own kids, right? This Irish, Catholic, Italian, right. you know, four brothers, restaurant business. And next thing you know, I had the job there. And so I was 28 years old as a general manager of Plandome Country Club, and it was the Wild West. Wall Street was booming. And so Manhasset is, um, by train, it's 30 minutes. There's actually a train station at Plandome Country Club. Oh, really? So the guys would get off the train. Right. 40, 4 o'clock. Um, and by 4.15, the bar was, forget three deep, it was four yeah. deep. <laughs> um, and the first thing I learned there, Joanna, was... Because I'd stand sort of watching the room. Here I am, 28 years old, no idea what's going on. And, and I learned that when you answered the phone, the first thing you said was, no, he's not here. And then you hung up the phone. No, he's not here. You hung up the phone. <laughs> and so um, it, was, it was the greatest membership in the world, friendly, funny. Most of them had gone in one generation from basically from Queens to Manhasset, which was for them, this is sort of the Irish Riviera. You know, they they've been they've been cops and they've been mailmen, um, and they found themselves on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Next thing you know, they were 
they were wealthy. Now, you think about that period of time, I mean, it was just money was flowing. It was wild. So it was 87 to 1991. And then, um, and then because of some relationships I had developed, I'd gotten called for Wingfoot. And ironically enough, I was actually at Cornell taking professional development classes. Oh. And so I was actually interviewing um, at, while I was at Cornell. And I had to drive home, which was a long drive, drive back here, interview, and then go back up to finish the, the classwork. Yeah. Cornell must be very proud. <laughs> uh, I would hope so. I actually spoke there last two years ago. I spoke oh, there. Did you? Yeah, yeah, and it's you know it, it's um it's still look it's the premier you know uh, right. program, but but I just you know I wonder I I wonder about who's going to be coming into the business, you know when I was much younger there was people were flocked to the business there was there was it was glamorous it was easy entry, um, but you had to be willing to work very hard and very long hours. I mean I look back on, on the hours that I've worked for the last thirty years. I mean we're you know extremely busy. And you just wonder if people who are coming into it now, whether or not they want to, and whether or not they even should, by the way. Um, because back then, forget, there was, you never, if you even brought up balance of life, you'd either be, you'd yes. be either laughed at or you'd be fired or something. There was no balance. Right. Of life. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah. But things have changed a little bit. <laughs> I hope so, yeah. No, no, we're seeing with people in the club industry where, yeah. where and I've said this to, to, to clubs boards, you know, be prepared for the fact that you may need three people instead of two. Because, because the, 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 you, first of all, you're not going to get quality people. And, and when you get quality people, they expect to be able to spend time with their families and, and to have a more normal life. So, you know, it may cost a little bit to have that third person. And yet I, I think it's just the reality of things. You know, the other industry, just to segue you know, in, within my world, is, is the golf course um, maintenance. No one's going into it. Our superintendent, when, who just received superintendent of the year, he's extremely gifted. As is Rye, Steve is Steve is is, is equally gifted. Um, he had seventy people in his class at uh, University of Massachusetts this year. I think there were seven. Oof. You think about you know the shrinking. Now I don't know from, from yeah. you know, the Culinary Institute, and I should ask that question: how, if classes are shrinking or not. I, I don't even know. Do you know? Cul uh, culinary schools are closing. That's that's yeah. the real yeah. issue. There's which is that right? kind of oh for sure. Um, yeah. What's interesting is kind of the shift now back into the apprenticeship model yeah. Yeah. so kind of like how you came up you yeah. see this like this this well while they cannot perhaps go to a culinary school they might get an apprenticeship that might then put them on the same path yeah we'll see how it plays out but <laughs> you know, one of the one of the great one of the great books you know sort of culinary books is is chef Pepin's um autobiography have you ever read it I've not read it, but I've heard it. It is so beautifully written. And, and what he went through in terms of, you know, his training, I mean, there was no school. There was, there was six months peeling potatoes and six months peeling carrots. And, and right. uh, yeah, really, really fascinating. I've had the pleasure of meeting him and, and what an accomplished chef, but also a great writer. Hmm, I'll have to check it out. Yeah. So what is the dynamic like between you and Rai? You've been at Winged Foot for 30 years. He's been there for quite some time as well. Obviously, you guys have, have worked closely together on all sorts of projects. What's that dynamic like between the two of you? You know, Julian, it, it, it's interesting. So when we just, we made, we decided a long time ago that we needed to make a change. We, we couldn't, club food was horrific. It was bad. I, I don't care what club you went to unless, I mean, with, with few exceptions, you know, and I can remember my mother and father saying, well, let's just go to the club. We need to use our minimum. And they ate whatever was served to them. And you didn't complain. It was considered sort of, it was, it was considered unseemly to complain. It was your club. 
you all shared in this. So you just, and we got to the point where we said, you know, we it just, this isn't working. Like a lot of things, even at an old traditional club, we said, you know, this just, just isn't working. It's, it's, you know, we're, we're, we have guests coming and you can see that, that they're, you know, the level of activity was not there within our own membership. And so I got there and I was absolutely, I was astonished at how bad it was. I mean, truly astonished. Great club with a really, really, I, I remember going home and saying to my wife, imagine the worst diner you've ever been in. I said, this is worse in terms of, you know, everything was out of a can. Everything was, the service was horrific. And so, you know, I sort of, you know, sort of get, started getting my toes wet. You don't want to upset things, you know, too, too dramatically, too quickly. And so, you know, years pass, years pass, we improved, made improvements, made improvements. And then we got to the point where, you know, we're going to hire a, a real chef, a New York restaurant, New York Times reviewed chef. We're done with this sort of making excuses. I remember I joked at one point that as much food as that would go out in a given evening would come back. And I, I would joke, you weren't sure which side the kitchen was on because, you know, the, the tray <laughs> would go out and the tray would come back. Tray would go out. You go, wait, where's you? And it was, it, it actually became comical. You know, you just, and then we pared down the menu to like six items. You know, it was Dover Soul, it was, it was a filet mignon, you know, the usual stuff. Right. And, and so that sort of bought us a little bit of time. We got through, I guess, the 06 Open. And um, we went out, we found this really nice young man. And his name was Nick Marchenko, um, who, who actually has gone on to be very successful in the area. And um, he had been uh, reviewed in the New York Times. Um, brought him in. And I remember the president of the club, whose name was Billy O'Keefe at the time, Billy O'Keefe's brother, uh, Michael O'Keefe was, was the caddy in Caddyshack. He played Danny Noon. Oh. <laughs> There's all, you know, connections in life. Yeah. <laughs> and so Billy said, so we went and visited the restaurant a couple of times. Others went, we met him. He did some cooking for us. And Billy said to me, I hate beets. And I loved his beet salad. He said, so if he could get me to love beets, yeah. So, but so here's here's where here, this is the really and, you know I I I have a great memory for certain sort of these sort of seminal moments, and I said to Billy and we first name basis after I said Billy what do we you know what do we do? Because when I first got there, remember I was dealing with this is thirty years ago I was dealing with a lot of post World War II, very hardcore. We want meat and potatoes and you know and so I said to Billy what do we do with Nick? What do we what do we? he says we don't do anything. We let him be a chef at Wingfoot. This was like, you know, you know don't do this. Don't serve that. We like yeah. this, like, you know, our string beans. And, and he said, no, just let him. And I said, boy, that's, that's, that's so simple. And yet so brilliant. We were so fearful of what the response would be to change. And yet once we made the change and, and, you know, nuanced it and, 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 and explained it in the right way that we weren't trying to, uh, alienate anyone. We were simply trying to, what a lesson this was in terms of allowing a professional to do their job, um, being, being confident enough to, to um, trust their skills. Um, and in the next thing you knew, so, so he had, so chef Marchenko, Nick had hired Rye and another sous chef, um, Tino, who's still around. Tino is absolutely just, he belongs on that show with Stan Tucci. <laughs> he has, he has, you know, the, 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 the pig, you know, the, the primal cuts of a pig on one arm. Yep. <laughs> no Brooklyn. He's just, 
He's tatted and he's a food, insanely passionate guy. And then Rye, Rye, who had had his great, great, and I'm going to answer the question, by the way. I, I, haven't, I haven't forgotten. It's okay. We're um, getting there. <laughs> from Asia. And my mother always says, you know, you just always talk too much. Um, um, and so great influence from Australia, Asia, time he spent in, in, in San Diego. And so those two, so it was time for Nick to move on. Um, and then it was Ryan Tino sort of side by side. Tino moved on and Ryan became the chef. And he's really connected with the membership. He's, there's, I think there's, you know, it's so much more than in a club environment. You know, so, so he's, he's, a, he's a, a very good cook to begin with, right? So left on his own, he can cook, he can roast, he can bake. I mean, there's nothing he can't do. Um, he's developed a really interesting team. I mean, the executive sous chef is Jamaican. Uh, have you met Chrissy? I have a few times. She's Chrissy. outstanding. Yes. I mean, yes. <laughs> yes. Just, so he's assembled this great team with, with diversity, which, which we're very keen on, by the way. And, um, but he's done more than just, he's done more than just cook. He's connected with the membership. He goes out, he talks. Um, and, and so, and I think that changes in a sense, the, the quote flavor of the food when there's a connection, right? There's something about when you go to that local restaurant and you love the person who's serving it or the person who's preparing it, it just tastes better, right? And so I think that's what, I think that's what Ryan's done. Not only brought the culinary operation on a technical level to a much, to a much higher standard, <clears throat> but he's also created an environment where he, Chrissy, uh, Hishem, who, by the way, an unbelievable cook. He worked at um, Morea, um, Central Park South, which is a Michelin, I think maybe two two star, um, fabulous cook. And he has this North African, um, Moroccan, Tangier uh, influence that's just amazing. So that so that combination, right? So you have rye, you have Chrissy, Jamaican, very very flavor flavorful cooking very home style. <clears throat> and now you have Hishem, who's cooked at Michelin two and three star restaurants. I mean, that combination is just- It's is unstoppable. Really, really <laughs> impressive. Yeah, it's very impressive. So the question was, what's the dynamic like between the two of you? <laughs> I, I had to pause for a minute. I had to catch my breath. Um, so the dynamic is one, back to, I think where I started sort of was with, was with Nick Marchenko and now with Rye allowing the professional to do his job. There's never any conversation about menu selection, menu uh, development, that's his, that's his baby. And I'm a very, very big believer in that. So the dynamic is, is, is very healthy. Um, and, and again, it's not, you know, it, it's, 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 you know, he's, he's a, a, a colleague. He doesn't work for me. He doesn't, you know, he works basically for himself in a sense. Uh, responsible both, by the way, both for the culinary operation and for you know, the, the financial success, which by the way, is a very keen business person. So, um, so the dynamic is one, a very healthy one, very respectful. Uh, basically he does his thing. I do my thing. You know, we have some, some overlap. Um, I, I, you know, I breeze through the kitchen every once in a while, trying not to snack as much as I used to. Um, so it's, it's a very, I would, I would call it healthy. I'd call it, um, I, I think you know, very, very professional. Um, but, and again, I think one of, one of autonomy where he is, he is as the chef, you know, I've been to, I've been to club kitchens where the, where the general manager or the clubhouse manager, club manager will basically sit and watch, you know, food as it's going out. They'll sit and watch as if they have, 
you know, the ability to, to either change something or comment on something, I am, I am the opposite of that person. I appreciate that about you. <laughs> and I'm sure Rai does too. So what, in your opinion, then drives food and beverage success? Is it the chef? Is it the, the team dynamic between you and him? Is it all of these things combined? Well, you know, we have, it's funny. So we, we use a, a firm called the McMahon Group. Bill McMahon mm-hmm. has developed this, this, you know, very popular, very successful company. I've known Bill for you know, my, my 30 years. And his survey work is very clear when it comes to Wingfoot and the food and beverage operation that the food and service is at a place all its own in clubdom. Um, you know, he jokes about it that like, that we, we've made up these numbers, you know, that when members, when members reply to surveys, it's just that there's, 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 first of all, we're providing really good high quality food. I mean, just from the very beginning, from the very basic, we're not, we're not financially driven, perhaps the way other operations are, we want the very best. We want it at a reasonable price. And so, so the, the value proposition, I think, is very good to begin with um, because the quality is there. The pricing is there. My opinion, some members may argue that it's too high, but that's always the case. Um, and then I think the service staff is beloved by the membership. So back to, the, back to that thesis that, you know, things sort of taste better when you like the person who's serving it. You know, we have, we have service staff members, um, you know, Giovanni's Bar, we actually named a bar after Giovanni with new bar. And rather than call it the East Room, it's now, G- everyone calls it Gio's Bar. Are we going to Gio's Bar? <laughs> uh, Giovanni's been there 35 years. His brother Caesar's been there, I guess, 30. Um, and Oscar, um, I mean, the, so we have, we have a very, very loyal service staff. So when a member returns after a long winter, they sit down and they're not introducing themselves to the waiter who's brand new, who's here on a J-1 visa and, you know, or they're whatever, they're a college student. They're meeting somebody who they know, who they respect. Um, the front of the house is, is, is run very ably um, by Umberto, who's been there longer than I've been, um, who was the quintessential sort of classic maitre d', you know, with his trimmed mustache and beautifully attired, you know. Um, very contemporary attire, but very beautifully attired, very professional, very strict. Um, and then Juan Carlos, who is his, his sort of next in command. And then Ileana, who is a young Latina who's come basically from, you know, uh, very, very uh, um, meager beginnings, no formal food beverage training, but has a sense of, a sense of empathy that is like nothing I've ever seen. I'll give you a quick example. So somebody on, on the staff we work with was going through something personal. This is just last week, two weeks ago. And I knew about it, but didn't say anything. Ileana, on her own, sent her flowers. She sent a colleague flowers. That's I mean, amazing. just who does that? <laughs> right. Well, that's how she is. She calls older members at home. Mr. Steintel, who's now in his 80s, our most senior member, she calls him cutie pie. Now, that doesn't happen at clubs like at clubs like Wingfoot very often. It's normally Mr. and Mrs. and very right. formal. He, he waits to be greeted by her. And when she calls him cutie pie, he just, you know, he just lights up. Yeah. So there's that combination, right? And then great food being produced by Ryan and his team. It's, you know, and a very generous drink on top of it. Hard combination. Can't, to can't beat that. Yeah. Yeah. What is your favorite dish that Rye has ever made? Wow, that's such a great question. I think you know we always get we always get a little spoiled come truffle time. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's it's sort of you know, the parpadella, guanciale, uh, fresh truffle. We we indulge um, a, a little bit in that every year. Um, you know, I think the fresh pastas have been have just been really. And look, that sounds so sort of everybody makes fresh pasta. Um, um, so I think I think his his introduction of and not just not just you know this is not spaghetti. This is these all forms, all different, all all different sauces. Um, I think it was what what I find really, um, um, and it's not a, not a particular dish. I think I'd have to hang my hat on the parpadella, guanciale, truffle. Um, the introduction of Asian food. You know, I tell the story about I came out of a board meeting one evening, and the grill room is still. I hear the noise, so let me poke my head in there, and there was there were a group of 10, 12, 14 guys slurping on udon noodles and pork belly. And I thought, this is happening at Wingfoot at my Wingfoot. <laughs> right. All these years. Um, and, and that's been, I mean, that was really remarkable to me that, that again, goes back to, you know, when, when Chef Nick and now Rye, um, the acceptance of, of quality, right? I mean, it's, Wingfoot's a quality place. I mean, the, the clubhouse, the decor, we just, we've done massive renovations. The golf course is completely restored, everything at a very high level. And I think we finally brought everything else. You know, we built a brand new turf care facility. Uh, you know, we tried to get everything between the two gates sort of up and, and, and by the way, now this food and beverage operation, which is which is comparable for a club like Winkfoot that you would expect. So, um, so uh, again, I'll go back to the Barpadella and Guanciale and Truffle. <laughs> Wonderful. Now zoom out for a minute. You know, you have a lot of connections within this industry. You're highly respected and you see other operations around the country. Tell me about your, how you think food and beverage in our industry will evolve post COVID. So we have a lot of opportunity ahead of us. What do you see coming next? Well, you know, so one of the things I've thought about is, and this is, I don't want to sound sort of opportunistic, but there are a lot of people who are unemployed and who will remain unemployed from the restaurant industry. So for those clubs, not Wingfoot, but for those clubs looking for talent, there's a lot of talent, talent out there. And I think that, that clubs who have not yet embraced the idea of we need restaurant quality food, um, I think they will do so. And I think they'll have an opportunity to hire people if they need to fill vacancies who are very qualified. I mean, we've been looking for someone to work with with our, our wine program. The number of sommeliers in the New York City area who are looking for work um, is it, really, it's, it's sad, um, but, but, but if clubs are smart, they'll, they will start sourcing these people. Even if they don't hire them on a full-time basis, they'll hire them for consulting. They'll hire them to do training, which is exactly what we're doing now. I mean, I'm in, on LinkedIn constantly looking for sommeliers, service training, because I think it's an opportunity for us, as good as we are, to just up the game a little bit. And I think a lot of clubs need to, they need to do that. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, as, I think a lot of clubs are going to come out of this strong, because, by the way, golf has been booming. Booming. I Best mean, year since Tiger Woods, I think. First one. <laughs> I mean. Opportunity, all these people coming to yes. the club. Let's, you know, forget, forget the, 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 the difficulties of serving during COVID because it'll pass. Um, so I think there's an opportunity for clubs to, to continue upping their games and, and perhaps get these people from the industry who have been displaced 
um, you know, to get them to get them involved in their operations. For more podcasts, check out our site, clubandresortchef.com.